0: What Bonnie Tyler needs to know a meatloaf, but more importantly, I need to know as an MS patient, and many, many people in the MS community want to know. I reached out to the author of this brand new paper about the genetic track of MS through Europe. His name is Professor Lars Fugger. He's at the University of Oxford, and he has very kindly agreed to talk to me. It's a fascinating interview, so buckle up, because he's got a lot of really important and interesting things to say. Before we start, just please, I would be ever so grateful if you could help support the MS Guide like some other members of the community do. It's patreon.com slash the MS Guide or click subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Be really, really grateful. Thank you very much. Let's get on with the interview. We have with us today, Professor Lars Fugger from the University of Oxford. Lars, can you tell me what your role is? So I'm, by training,
1: um, what's called a clinical immunologist. And uh, so my specialty is uh, within uh, diseases of uh, the immune system. And uh, so when I started out many years ago, I trained at Stanford in um, in California. Uh, MS was um, even more of an enigma. Uh, as compared to uh, today. And in those days, it was thought that the MS was originating in the brain, uh, because clearly all the manifestations, the symptoms, the disease is within the brain. And uh, so the only treatment was hydrocortisone, uh, which by far is a long solution and also it has a number of side effects and it has a bit of an acute effect.
0: I was diagnosed, Lars, before they had um, the first beta interferons. I got my first beta interferons at Oxford with uh, Professor Pallas. Yeah, but it was was just, there was nothing. You just had to go, okay. No, there was
1: nothing. I mean, literally nothing. And uh, so... So, 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 so I'll just give you a brief account of uh, what then happened, because the idea then was that um, the immune system was playing a role in MS, but also that viruses uh, was playing a role in MS, and because of the viruses having as a suspicious role in MS, um, our patients were treated with interferon because it was thought we could sort of dampen the um, immune response uh, to a virus by giving uh, interference. Yes. And, and, and and the thing is, I, I normally say that, um, I'll come back to this in a second, but now you mentioned interference. I normally say that, that the best thing interference did to the patients was not its efficacy, but showing that uh, there was, what's hugely important, that there was a market in treating MS patients, and it was possible to move on from hydrocortisone because the big pharmaceutical companies in those days were reluctant, and that's an understatement, to invest in a drug development program. because they didn't see any profit in it.
0: Yes, it's very, very profitable. Now, you take cladriamine, the exact same drug for cancer is one fifth of the cost of it in MS.
1: So, so what it showed was there is a market, and it's a horrible thing to say, but it is it is an important driver for the big pharmaceutical companies uh, to go into a drug development program. So, beta interferon adds, you know, some effect much more than hydrocortisone. So, you know, let's just say, roughly speaking, maybe. 20 30 percent efficacy, mm. and um, but it was enough to convince people that it was possible uh, to start to treat MS patients more seriously. Uh, and um, the good thing about interferon was, of course, also that it had very few side effects. I know who those who have the side effects find them difficult because you will know better than anyone else this could be flu like symptoms.
0: Or injection site reactions, just constantly stab I mean, not really a drug thing, but the fact that you have to stab yourself every other day as it was then. But um yeah.
1: So in any event, so so what happened over the next um twenty years, twenty five years was the came. Big studies in the genetics of m s and uh, so they were showing that the entire genetic risk, the predisposition the inherited predisposition to m s was found in genes or near genes that are found in the immune system. This is the immune system called the peripheral immune system because it it's sort of in our peripheral periphery and blood, and lymph nodes, and so So all the genes conferring risk to MS were immune genes, and that was an eye-opener because, as I said, it was believed that the the disease originated from inside the brain. And all of a sudden, we had to take almost 180 degrees change in our perception of of the disease. So the root of the evil which turned out not to be evil i'll come back to that in a second but the root of the disease came from outside the brain and then moved across and started to cause what you know uh, some multiple sclerosis. oh
0: and lars your research just within the ms community in the last couple of days ever since the bbc picked up on that and made that thing it's caused I wouldn't say there's no concern, but it, it it's made an impact because in the way that beta interferon suddenly let you know that people were willing to treat you, shall we say, it's an unknown disease, like you say, or and, and this whole everybody's got an idea, and you're one of the people that's starting to put your finger on why.
1: Yeah. So 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 just coming back to this, so that paper, mm. uh, as you know, was published in uh, in a journal called Nature last mm. And uh, it sort of blew us uh, out of the water because uh, the media attention was just overwhelming. Uh, So we have counted, or somebody has counted, more than 800 different media outlets. And uh, so it went into, as you uh, just mentioned, BBC, Mm -hmm. but also uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post. So this was... This was what they call a big story, and and, and we are not used to that kind of uh, media coverage. But fortunately, uh, so the big papers got it right, and uh, because some of the minor papers got it badly wrong.
0: I was going to ask you if you thought it had been fairly represented and and accurately reported. So I
1: had been speaking to uh, some of these uh, reporters, and the ones from the big papers are good and uh, they will understand what you are trying to explain. And what I said was that this story, uh, so f- so for those of your viewers or listeners who might not be aware of this, this was a paper showing that the genetic risk, uh, the MS risk genes, could be uh, tracked back to 5,000 years ago and to a step population a living where uh, Ukraine and the Caspian Sea is an area. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so these were people. So, so it's a multi-layered uh, sort of explanation. So, I'll just take it step by step. So, we could, so we could, we could, we we could track these risk teams back to this um, step population, and um, five thousand years ago, and this step population was undergoing. Uh, one of the biggest lifestyle changes in our human evolution, because they started to live with uh, domestic animals, and uh, they were eating meat from these animals, and they were also drinking milk and uh, yogurt and cheese from these animals. But, and, but 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 the important thing here is they of course didn't know how to pasteurize. Uh, milk and yogurt and cheese. Well, it was the, fermenta-
0: the fermentation, wasn't it? And then, you know, after a point. So, so they would be exposed to a number
1: of um, what's called pathogens. I mean, bacteria, mm-hmm. viruses living in undercooked meat and in milk that was not pasteurized. But also because they were living with the domestic animals, so they would be exposed 24-7 to the parasites, worms, what have you, that these animals are carrying. So, so this stem population called yamnias were bombarded with these microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, parasites, worms. So, 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 so clearly that would require for them to survive, to have or to develop a strong immune system. And uh, so that is the old story about survival of the fittest. so 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 those who would survive would have certain genes that would give them an advantage, would be able they would be able to sort of hide off this bombardment of uh, microorganisms. Well, so what we found was that those genes that had been selected for, they had been enriched because these people needed them to survive. Uh, those are the same genes that today confer risk to MS. So the important thing, the important thing for me to say was, and that's why I said we thought we would be coming to the root of the evil, but there was no evil. Mm. I mean, these genes were normal genes, and they still are normal genes. So one thing I was a bit worried about was when in some media that these genes were mentioned as mutations, which we know from cancer. And I made that quite clear to those I spoke with. They are not mutations. Mm -hmm. They are normal genes. And they have been selected for because they give us an advantage in our immune system. Today, they're still normal genes. The biggest genetic risk factor in MS is found in one in four in the population, just to give you sort of an understanding of how common it is. And it it, it, it it's just a very important part of our immune system. So the story was that the genes that are conferring risk predisposing to MS today were Enriched for, were selected for five thousand years ago because they gave the step population an advantage in fighting off bacteria viruses.
0: So where does the EBV, the Epstein Barr virus, fall into this? Because that within again within the MS community.
1: And uh, so, so, so you could ask yourself: So how come these genes today are risk genes in MS? And. Um, we don't have a very clear picture of that, but one thing that is quite clear is that these genes were selected for, as I said, uh, when the steppe population was undergoing one of the big lifestyle changes in our evolution. Within the last 50 years, we have, in our part of the world, undergo another of the biggest lifestyle changes in our evolution. And these genes are now casted in a completely different environment because we don't have the same pressure where we live of uh, pathogens, of viruses, bacteria, worms, parasites, and what have you. So they they are sort of coming into a world where they were not really meant to be operating, right? So so the popular explanation is that because of that, there now is an imbalance because our immune system and what the immune system should be fighting. The immune system should be busy fighting all kinds of infections. But in our part of the world, even though we might think so, but we don't have this load of infections any longer. And that is simply because of, you know, we have much better sanitation. Uh, we have uh, antibiotics. We have vaccines. And that has just meant that we and you know, our food is pasteurized. I'll just give you an example of how um, this has changed. 100, 150 years ago, 25% of newborn children died. So so you can see things have changed dramatically uh, just within the last century or so.
0: Exponentially, we've suddenly, you know, things that we don't think about today were a thing 100 years ago. Exactly. That's
1: that's exactly my point. And also because when I'm going 5,000 years back, you know, this selection for this enrichment for genes didn't happen overnight. That, of course, no. also means to a long period of time. So, so we are sort of trying to find our feet in this new environment, as you know. And MS is more likely than not a modern disease. This is not a disease no. that is likely to have been a problem or even has been occurring 5,000 years ago. More likely than not, MS is a modern disease where and now I'm coming to the point where the immune system is getting confused and instead of fighting infections, all of a sudden it starts to attack um, the brain and the spine cord. And that's where we sort of started out. MS is coming from outside the brain. And the way we are treating MS patients today, and I think that's, that's an important point for, for, for all of you is... We are treating MS patients by dampening the immune system, yeah, and uh, so that is being done in different ways. But the overarching theme is that it's sort of—it's not a very specific way of dampening the immune system.
0: No, I mean I had alemtuzumab, which is essentially—I was liken it to a sort of machine gun at everything. Yeah. But it's also important to bear in mind
1: that even these drugs are not perfect. Mm. They have made a big change in the way patients are being treated because as we were discussing when we were both young, uh, the options were limited. Today, patients can be given, for instance, uh, one of the antibodies against B cells, anti-CD20 and you know, they will be able to go back and uh, if it, if 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 it's a young woman to um, to you know go back, live normal life, get children, go back to work for a number of years. And uh, but my point is with this paper is I'm now coming to the point. The point of this paper was first of all, we were trying to demystify the disease by showing that the genetic risk, is coming from normal genes. So I think that is an important message because young mothers who have had children and who get MS will ask, will I pass this on to my children? And as you know, and as your viewers, listeners will know, there's a very small risk for that. And it should, of course, be seen in the context that these are normal genes. They are really, really. So it's not like...
0: So what do you think, with, with this, what do you think counts or can you say from the research is that for, there's a great female bias in, in MS in the sense that it affects females a great deal more than males. And is there anything in this genetic work that you've done that no. would inform why that was?
1: No. So, so, so we have also been looking at this. We have been looking at this over the years. It's not only MS. It is, with a couple of exceptions. It's a common denominator for autoimmune diseases that uh, women are more at risk of getting these
0: diseases. So not just MS? But no, other. not only you. Ah, okay. I operate in this tiny world of MS. Well,
1: so... also, no, no, I understand that. But, but it's um, I simply don't know why that is. Inversely, which we are working on right now, Uh, That uh, women uh, with MS who get pregnant, or women with rheumatoid arthritis who get pregnant, will get a disease-modifying effect of pregnancy. So the disease will be less aggressive uh, while Mm. they are pregnant. So, so clearly, you know, whatever is going on, it has to do with some hormonal change by a reconfiguration of the immune system by being a woman, maybe by sex hormones, uh, by uh, or maybe the absence of uh, of all the hormones that you and I have, <laughs> uh, and uh, and 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 clearly also in pregnancy, uh, trying to uh, hold on to the little baby, which is half uh, father and half mother. Mm. Will also have uh, an effect. So, so, we are trying to to find out what are these endogenous mechanisms that can sort <laughs> of keep disease at right. bay.
0: Is, is there anything in this research? I mean, you know, we all see it and hear it and think, you know, mm. as the lay people, the outsiders, the immediate thing is is there anything about what you've found that would have any impact on, say, my or anybody else's treatment in the in the next 12 24 36 months or is this learning something to inform future developments
1: yeah so so i'm normally a bit underwhelmed when i see basic science papers and then people will come out and say you know there you go this will influence the treatment within and then they will give a number of monthly years and i think that's hugely unfair to the patients um, because it, they will, of course, hope that is the case, and they will call the GP or the treating neurologist the next day, and they will be hugely disappointed.
0: It's the hope that kills you. That's the it's phrase. Awesome. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so so, so I'm always worried about this, so I want to be clear about this and to say this is a piece of basic research. It's thing mm. to demystify the disease, but it's also helping for us to understand that the way forward is trying to find in new drugs the balance in the immune system uh, instead of uh, just suppressing it. Suppressing it has been, it has really been helpful, but mm. clearly we need to strive to constantly optimize the treatments. And, and clearly, the way to optimize treatment is to, um, to balance the immune system, but mm. also clearly to stop disease in its tracks as early on as possible.
0: And that's what they're trying to do with HSCT, but apparently evidence of EBV will come back after a while, after the HSCT treatment. You mentioned you come back to EBV. Can I drag you back? Yes. I'm not the expert, but I know it's spoken about hugely, and I read something by David Baker, Professor Baker at at Cure sort of saying that it was observed... I think it was like 57 further, 100 years ago, you know, and then Danish people eating, I think, tree sap or something. I mean, it's chicken and egg. So I mean, did EBV come first or or did... Okay. I I, kind of don't know, Lars, how to ask the question No, 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 no.
1: No, I mean, no, I think you're asking the question in a very eloquent way. So so, so we now need to go even further back um, because... No, it, but it is important because yeah, 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 we no. have been living with EBV as humans since we were monkeys almost. So EBV has been with us for millions of years, right? Right. And uh, so EBV is not a new thing. And and I think that is also important uh, to understand. And, and, and I'll just give you some facts about this because most of us will be, Infected with Epstein-Barr virus uh, mm. when we are toddlers, and uh, that will cause a snotty nose, a sore throat, just you know, like a normal cold, like all toddlers have. Mm. Yeah, it's not, permanently. Yeah, it's <laughs> well exactly, and that's not really seen as a risk factor. The risk factor comes if you don't get the infection as uh, as a toddler. So if you have the infection uh, as an adolescent or a young adult where it will uh, manifest itself as uh, glandular fever, mononucleosis, right? That's yes. where the risk is coming. Uh, and and then the risk goes up, up considerably. Mm. And uh, that is not... So, so we need to be cautious about these black and white statements. Yeah. That is not the same to say... And uh, it's important for me to, 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 to really make this clear. Because you have had late onset EBV, because you have had glandular fever, it's not does not mean that you will get, get MS. It's a risk
0: factor. I was going to say, it increases the risk. It's like driving without a seatbelt. You may never have a problem, but if you do... Yeah, so, so I think that's a good metaphor. So, so it
1: increases the risk but it, it it's, uh, you know, many factors increases the risk for getting MS, and I'll get back to that in a second. But late onset, and, and, and when I say late onset, it is opposed to early onset as a toddler. Late onset is typically as a teenager uh, when you get the infection. That mm. will increase your risk. So there's been a number of, uh, well, there's been in particular, one paper recently in science where they were demonstrated, demonstrating, yes, that is a risk factor. And then there's been a speculation over the years why EBV was a risk factor. And, um, and I would say, and I'm not saying this in any other way than just making it clear that EBV is a complicated virus. And uh, it could have a number of uh, ways of increasing the risk for MS. And so there's a lot of speculation right now what it is. It could be more than one. That would be my bets. And it could be different from person to person. So I think we need to be <laughs> careful about not saying it's because of. What is the consequence of us realizing that uh, MS... Um, to a certain extent I won't say it's caused by EBVs, the risk factor in AMS. What is mm-hmm. the consequence of that observation, right? So people have been trying to treat with um, drugs that uh, is, uh, or are targeting
0: viruses. There's no
1: really clear
0: evidence. Well, there's been a couple of case studies published recently yeah. of AIDS patients. Is it on ten o- ten of or, or- but, but the AIDS patients ate, yeah, but Okay, so let let me just answer that.
1: So eight. I feel like patients... I'm
0: complicating it to my... No, you're
1: not. You're just asking a lot of uh, interesting questions, and I will address them all. So AIDS patients are different in the sense that the, one of the hallmark of their diseases is that they have a wipeout of a certain population of uh, immune cells called T cells. Hmm. If you take them out of the equation, MS has uh, very poor sort of the chances of uh, developing. So that's, I, I, I'll stand by that. Um, with uh, with EBV, so what is the consequence of this? The consequence, of course, is that you take EBV out of the equation, right? And how,
0: how do you do this? Well, the you do... The childhood it. vaccination that t- yeah, some people are can, talking uh, about.
1: Yeah, so we've just seen this with Corona, of course, with mm. COVID, how helpful uh, that was. to to handle a virus. Now, the thing is that, as I said, and it's coming back to we've been living with EBV for a very long time, and in most of us, it's not really creating any problems. So having MS, living with MS is, of course, suboptimal. Right, <laughs> the smile <it's> mildly,
0: yeah. <laughs> yes, it, 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 quite, <laughs> yeah,
1: yes. it's it's actually quite unfortunate, right? Yeah, and I, I'd it, swap it, yeah, and it, it, and it causes a lot of suffering, right? Mm. But and and but but also uh, EBV is also associated with a certain form of cancer, uh, which we uh, fortunately don't see in this part of the world. But my point is, it's still a very small minority of those who are infected with epv that will get any of these diseases the question is if you um a population wide start to take this vir- virus out of the equation what will that mean because i i i think some balance has been found between the virus and um, and the population but, but like
0: you said this 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 genetic changes mm-hmm. that that conferred protection against certain things, possibly increased risk of MS on the other. I mean, to me, it's like a kitchen knife. You know, you've got different ones. One is really good at stuff, but it's not good at other stuff. Yeah.
1: So, but also, it's just coming back to what I said, and because these genes were clearly superior in in, in one particular context, right? They are also really good today, but the context for some of us has changed. Yeah. So, they Sort of cast it in a different way. So, so as I was saying, I just wanted to point out that the EBV is not all, the only risk factor. No,
0: and uh, it's so, just popular in the community, should we say, because of that big US study. And no, no, and and it is. Trust me, it is a risk factor. But every everybody in my view always wants to take one thing and just pin it on it and go. That's yeah. it, and it's yeah. never yeah. that simple. Yeah,
1: that's not how MS works. No. no, it's not, and that's why. I keep on saying there's a very good reason why MS is called a complex disease <laughs> because it is complex. Yeah. And it's not it's not a one-trick pony. And um, so I think we just need to come to terms with that we need to sort of circle around this disease in smaller and smaller circles uh, to find out what it is. Right. And, and then just like an onion, take layer by layer uh, and then get to the core to find out what are the different layers? Uh, how do we treat each oh, layer? That's
0: and a, then that's a good the, analogy, Lars. I'm not asking you to commit, but is this? Do you think the way, the rate that we're progressing with our knowledge and and sort of tightening the circle, is this going to be a five, ten, thirty, fifty year kind of um, <laughs> effort on the part of people like you and and you know tightening the circle, tightening the net, and getting to it? So I'm very cautious. I appreciate. Exactly. It. I'm not trying to uh, get you to no, no,
1: but I, in, because it's not fair to the patients. Yeah, yeah, it's simply not fair to. But the we also
0: pa- want to have an idea that.
1: No, I know, but 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 let's just. I mean, let's just go back once again. So, twenty years ago, when did you start to get beta interferon? Twenty years ago or so.
0: Yeah, it was. It was in the cost sharing scheme on the NHS. It was Professor Pallas. It was. I was. Yeah.
1: So you can see within 20 years we have gone from having hydrous in in the cupboard, right? Mm. And today we have, you know, 10 maybe more different drugs. And and they have a much better efficacy. Mm. So, so the way things are developing right now, I think it is likely that things will sort of speed up in trying to get new drugs to mm. treat the disease. Um, but I just wanted as I said, I just want to be very, very cautious. I completely
0: appreciate that. It's just it be...
1: pipeline. The, the, the it importance...
0: tells you, but you want to have hope for something, even if it's hope for uh, 20 it's... years' time.
1: So, so I want to make this clear. Yes, I was, and I, so when I started to speak about MS when I was a young medic at Stanford, <laughs> I had seen patients, right? I was hugely pessimistic about this. The professor I was working with said, don't work with MS, it's too complicated, right? So so that was sort of the way it was perceived. My point is, things have moved, and there is a movement in trying to get new therapy into MS. So, so I can tell you, after having worked with MS for, what was it, five or ten years, I realized when I was looking backwards, I said, because I had some of the manuscripts for my talks, that I was starting to say, there's light at the end of the tunnel, and that sort of came to me step by step, because I saw that people across the globe are working on this disease, yeah. and uh, so 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 what has changed is that um, first of all, when we are studying MS. Uh, we need certain tools in the box to study the disease. And those tools are constantly getting better. The other thing is, when I started out, and it's not about me, but it's just to exemplify it, it was hugely difficult to study MS by studying patients. So a lot of MS studies were based on uh, cells in culture, were based on rats, mice, and it, and it was helpful in those days but clearly i mean there's a difference so so what has changed today is that we and other groups are now studying ms by studying patients with ms right and 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 in by doing that you will get closer to the patient of course and closer to what's going on in real time instead of constantly have to Make all these assumptions based on working with, you know, yeah. cell lines, mice, rats, what have you. Yeah. I think that is a major step forward, and also there's a major drive forward to try to diagnose patients earlier and to start to treat patients earlier, yeah, and not just wait for things to sort of have now the data
0: is there for early intervention with high efficacy therapies and. I'm yeah. sort of astonished at the people that don't, but, you know, the doctors, but many, you know, there's a change happening. There is, and that's
1: exactly my point. There is a change happening in perception of disease, but also in how do we do this and how mm-hmm. do we take it forward. And um, so, yes, there is hope, and and, and and there's much more hope as compared to when I started, and things will happen.
0: You know, I think that's an excellent point to wind this up because I I suspect it's one of these topics we could probably talk about on and on and on, <laughs> but no, I'm
1: mean, so I mean you know when you asked me I said immediately, mm-hmm. because I can talk to newspapers, I can talk to here and there, but the important thing for me is still to talk to those who will be interested in what's happening, oh. and that of course will be the patients and those who live with the patients. Yeah, so I'm
0: very. You're to the choir. Everybody's really keen to hear what you have to say. I've, I've already said to a few people, I'm get to interview Professor Fugger. It's well, going to be, uh, yeah. and so, and now I have I have a bunch of editing work this afternoon to do to make sure right. that I get it up as quick as I can.
1: Right. Well, you're very welcome. But thank, thank you so really, much I'll, again. I would just say that uh, to all of those who are listening to this and have a personal stake in this, rest assured, people are trying to make this a disease that's easier to live from, rest assured.
0: Thank you. Oh, that's a brilliant note, Lars. So that ends a brilliant interview with Professor Fugger, and I'm really grateful that he joined us on short, such short notice. And it is incredible to hear about his devotion to really the patients, who he thinks we are at the center of things, and that's just awesome, which is why he gave me an interview. I couldn't believe it, frankly. But anyhow, I hope you enjoyed that. The MS Guide is a community channel, essentially. I don't make anything from it, so I really rely on your support. If you've listened this far, I'm hoping you've liked it. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash the MS Guide. You can also subscribe on YouTube if you want, if that's where you're listening to this. Or click subscribe in the uh, whichever podcast app it is that you use. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.